Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Mary Claire Haver. In this episode, Dr. Haver discusses inflammation, infections, and the specifics of the Galveston diet. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. Thank you. Women that have been on antibiotics sometimes come down with chronic yeast infections. Yes. And they can have it for months. Months. How yeah. can they get it? How can they get it improving and get it better? So probiotics can go a long way with that. Um, there are probiotics specifically designed for female health things with what we call the good bacteria. Lactobacillus is a huge one. That is the bacteria that should be pop, have the highest level in the vagina. The vagina is not sterile. The gut's not sterile. The bladder's not sterile. None of this is sterile. And so in the vagina, when we have an overgrowth of yeast, yeast is present in small amounts, but when we kill off the good bacteria with an antibiotic, you know, necessary antibiotic, amoxicillin is one of the most common ones we see do this. It kills off the lactobacillus, it allows the Gardnerella bacterium to overgrow, so you end up with bacterial vaginosis, or it allows the yeast, which are now not suppressed by the good bacteria, to overgrow, and you end up with a chronic yeast infection. And until you can restore that balance in the vagina, then you're going to struggle, especially if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, because the yeast loves sugar, and the higher your blood sugars are, the more um, effectively they're going to grow and prosper. Someone who's bouncing back from uh, bouncing back between uh, bacterial vaginitis mm -hmm. and these chronic yeast infections that are lasting for months, uh, can they be helped? Ooh, okay, you've got to make sure your nutrition's on point. That's always the first thing. So, you know, making sure you're not going over that 25 grams of added sugar per day and making sure you're getting enough fiber. And I would definitely recommend probiotic supplementation for them with things heavy in lactobacillus. Um, the other is, you know, I, it's a handful of patients that I would have who would have this chronic BV or chronic yeast. And there are some long-term treatment protocols that you can do where you're doing a very low dose of an antibiotic for a much longer period of time to try to slowly suppress the overgrowth of those bugs so that you allow the good bacteria to overgrow. If you do too much too fast, you're killing off the good with the bad. So a combination of, you know, the right nutrition and probiotic supplementation and doing a low dose long-term seems to help a lot of women, but you have to have a really good OBGYN who knows what they're doing. How long does it usually take for someone like that to recover? It could be months. I've seen, you know, four months of treatment, three months of treatment. It was not unusual in that case. And these are special patients to have to do a longer course of therapy for, for months. Are you a proponent of people going out in the sun? Um, I think, you know, vitamin D. Um, is important. I think a lot of my mental health, I mean, if I could flip my thing around, I look outside of, I have a beautiful backyard 
uh, and I'm lucky enough to live on what we call the bayou. I live on the bay in Galveston. And so I've chosen to work right here at the kitchen counter because I can look outside and see, it makes me happy. And so I know my cortisol levels are lower <laughs> because I enjoy my view. Um, now I'm inside, um, but I, yes, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy the activity, enjoy being outside, but just be protective of your skin um, as much as possible to decrease the risk of skin diseases. For those, for that condition we were talking about, the chronic yeast or, uh, or the BV, does boric acid have any so boric acid, um, if handled correctly, a lot of doctors don't know how to prescribe boric acid because it's not, it's not easy. It's not a prescription. You have to go to a compounding pharmacy, find the right pharmacist who knows what they're doing. But boric acid has been shown to be helpful in BV and chronic BV. So let's talk about menopause. If you could take us through the stages of menopause. So, um, so, so we have normal reproductive function where you're having a period every month and everything's normal and you're, you're having a family and whatnot. And then things start changing. So there's perimenopause, which is the time from where you stop normal to menopause, which is one year without periods in a normal menstruating woman. That time period is perimenopause and it's hallmarked by overall decreasing estrogen levels, but they wildly fluctuate you know, through that time period, which is why the symptoms can be so severe in perimenopause. And in that time period is seven to 10 years for most women. So it's not unusual for a 35 year old woman to start having perimenopausal symptoms linked to her ovarian function starting to decrease from perimenopause. Um, the average age of menopause in the US is 51, but 45 to 55 is still very, very normal. Cause I'll have older patients, you know, my age, 52, 53 saying, why am I still having periods? I'm like, hang on, you're still normal. And there's some small health benefits to actually being one of the later ones. <laughs> um, so, and then postmenopause begins once that last, that you've gone a year without a period. It has its own set of, you know, risk factors and disease states. Um, so this whole menopause journey is years and years and years in the making. People that suffer very badly from hot flashes, what can be done to help them? Sure. Um, again, nutrition on point for sure. You know, doing whatever you can to lower your blood sugar levels. There's a great study I just read and posted that looked at time between meals and blood sugar. So sudden drops in blood sugar, actually they did blood sugar measurements and were measuring hot flashes. There's a huge link between low, low, low blood sugars. Um, and it's usually postprandial. So you eat a high sugar load, insulin levels rise, and then you have a crash. That's when the hot flashes hit for a lot of patients. So making sure that you're eating, um, eating, a, you know, according to our program or plan or, or, you know, lifestyle that promotes stable blood sugars. So that's going to be high fiber, low added sugars, et cetera, just everything I've talked about before. And then there are some supplements that can be helpful, um, but it doesn't work for everyone. There's things like black cohosh, some soy products can be helpful. Um, St. John's wort can be helpful. There are pharmacologic things that you can try that are non-hormonal. Um, the top two that I would recommend when I was in clinical practice was um, gabapentin can be helpful. Um, my patients who had breast cancer, like people who could not take estrogen for, you know, for cancer or other reasons, my, my top clonidine for blood pressure does help with hot flashes as well as black, um, excuse me, as um, gabapentin. And then of course, hormone replacement therapy is the gold standard, but not everyone's a candidate for that. Why do some people have the hot flashes so bad where their hair is even wet and they feel that their calves <laughs> are sweating? You know, 
there's definitely a genetic component to that where you just have excel, you know, um, accentuated responses to the thermal dysregulation. I mean, a hot flash is just dysregulation of our, of our um, thermostat. And some people have it worse than others. Now, if if patient A has it a better time, 15% of women will never have a hot flash. God bless them. I was not in that group. Um, and they're like, what's wrong with me? I'm like, nothing. You're just lucky. Maybe you had the nutrition on point. Maybe it was genetic and you were never going to get one. We, you know, there's, it's a multifactorial reason. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly why someone has it worse or better, but we know that you can change your nutrition and improve things. You can add in medication and improve things. And how about SSRIs like uh, mm -hmm. like Paxil or Paxil or um, yes, SSRIs have been shown to be helpful for a, a broader array of menopausal symptoms than just hot flashes. Um, again, they're not for everyone, but we do see a diminish of several menopausal symptoms with SSRIs as well. How often do you see somebody that has hot flashes, even up in their sixties? and it's still bothering them. And what could be done to help those outliers that they're in their 60 to 60? Yeah, at that point, you know, if you're, if you're past, most women, the menopausal symptoms will start declining four years after their last period, but that's just an average. We do have the outliers. First thing I tell those women is let's do some blood tests because not every hot flash is, is due to menopause. And we're getting outside of the window of this being expected. Maybe there's something else going on. So a trip to the doctor to get blood tests to make sure, is this really menopause for me or am I missing, you know, my body's trying to tell me something else is going on. What else could it be? What's in the differential for that? Oh gosh. Um, one of the biggest things is they had undiagnosed tuberculosis. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, especially down here, we're close to countries that have a lot of TB. And so, you know, I've had a couple of patients over the years who had undiagnosed TB and had no idea. And they just thought it was menopause because they were having so many sweats. Um, you know, chronic disease can cause it, stress can cause it. Um, there's a lot of mental things that, that can, you know, the body will dysregulate um, based on stress situations outside of menopause. And is exercise helpful? Exercise is definitely helpful for almost every menopause symptom um, on the long term because I, we think the cortisol levels come down. It just makes your, your body more efficient um, to handle the dysregulation. And let's talk about a little bit about hormone replacement. What do you think is the best way to evaluate hormones? Is it urine? Is it blood? Is it saliva? That's a great question. Okay, I hope so it's not hair. No, it's a complicated answer. Um, in OB-GYN, you know, in traditional OB-GYN, um, you know, ACOG recommendations, American Council of OB-GYN, um, and a lot of doctors kind of stray from that because they feel like it's not helping their patients. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus or saying what they're done is wrong, but they get into the land of things that are not FDA approved. And I think just in an effort to help their patients, they're willing to go outside of the FDA. I didn't go that route, you know? Um, so, um, Definitely, we have great blood tests to tell you if you are in menopause, for sure. If you're, you're done with your last period, we have the FSH level and an estradiol, and that's going to nail it 100% of the time. Perimenopause is very hard to diagnose, you know, if you're looking for a blood test, because those levels fluctuate so wildly every single day. So there's not, you know, I don't love a saliva test <clears throat> for that, because that's not giving you, it's not like an A1C for blood sugar, where it's giving you a six-week look back. That's a one-time dose. It depends on where she is in her menstrual cycle. 
FS, you know, estradiol on a normal, on a normal woman, estradiol is going to fluctuate throughout the month. Progesterone is going to fluctuate throughout the month. FSH and LH fluctuate throughout the month. There's not like a normal level. There's a cancer level and there's, you have, you have premature ovarian failure level, but everything in the middle is still pretty much normal. And so giving someone a potentially, you know, harmful prescription based on a salivary level or a one-time level in perimenopause, I think is probably not for me the best route to go. I treat someone based on symptoms. And so I'm willing to offer medication for perimenopausal symptoms. And we titrate based on how they feel, not what their blood levels are. Because again, like we talked about, 15% of women will never have a hot flash. 15% of women, you know, will never have mood swings. Will never, you know, they feel fine. They just don't have a period one day. Lucky them. Um, so I was taught to titrate medication doses based on symptoms, not on blood levels. And how about urine? I don't know anything about doing urinary tests for uh, urine. I guess they're testing for metabolites of estradiol. Yeah, yeah. I, the 216 ratio to see who's at high risk for cancer. Is that anything that you, that's something I don't know anything about that. That's not anything I've ever studied. So let's talk about as some people get older, they start getting dryness. Mm -hmm. They start getting atrophy of the wall. Vaginal. Yeah. What, what could, what could be done to help those people? So um, that's a great question because it leads to so much sexual dysfunction and women are scared to talk about it. They don't know how to ask, you know, there's someone who kind of had a robust sex life before, and then now is having pain with menopause. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sad we still live in a society where a lot of women are even ashamed to talk to their doctor about it because they feel like, you know, they've done something wrong. Um, so I'm glad you're asking. We can open up this conversation. So one of the changes associated with decreasing estrogen levels, the, the tissue of the vagina, the vulva, the labia, um, the clitoris is all highly estrogen dependent to stay healthy and to stay um estrogenized, you know, to produce mucus, to have elasticity. When those estrogen levels go away, when you biopsy a pre and postmenopausal woman, the premenopausal woman has multiple layers of thickness. It's velvety. It's got lots of globules with mucus. It stays moist. You know, it's very flexible and elastic to accommodate, you know, for sexual intercourse. Um, when you look at a postmenopausal woman's vagina, it's super thin. It's, it's very prone to injury. Just the smallest amount of trauma can cause bleeding and pain. And so, there are some medications that have been developed that can help promote the tissue thickness, health, strength in the area. Um, some of the serums, um, the serums which are uh, selective estrogen reuptake modulators um, that are used in breast cancer can be helpful um, for treating the vagina. The best treatment though really is just doing topical estrogen in the vagina. It's done at such a low dose. It doesn't have the systemic absorption. It has minuscule risk compared to systemic estrogen as far as breast cancer and all the reasons why people don't go on HRT. Vaginal estrogen is very different. It's a, it's a top, it's like using a topical eye because you're an ophthalmologist, you know, um, it's like systemic steroids versus topical, you know, hydrocortisone eye drops, you know, you wouldn't counsel people the same way um, versus on what their risks are, you know, systemically for that. And so topical estrogen in the vagina, I think almost every woman should be on <laughs> if they're going to continue to become sexually active, it decreases your risk of infection, of bladder infection, of, of um, leaking urine. And it has so many health benefits down there. I'm a huge fan. And is that something that could be used into the 60s and 70s? Absolutely, especially if you intend to become remain sexually active that long or become sexually active. Good for you. So, <laughs> Unlike HRT, which I've heard you say that there's a small window when if you're going to go on HRT, you have to do it within that window. 
So current FDA recommendations for hormone replacement therapy are sometimes starting in perimenopause, which is really when we see the maximum benefit, um, and then continuing for no more than five years postmenopause. So for most women around 50, you know, 55, 56, because the risks start outweighing the benefits. Now I've talked to urologists, I've talked to other, you know, you have the camp of the oncologists who are like, no, 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 you've got to stop. And then you've got the camp of the people who actually take care of the pelvis who are like, no, 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 keep going. <laughs> and so um, I'm 52, I'm still on and I'm really questioning like, when am I going to come off of this? You know, when do I feel like for me that I think that's an individual discussion between a, a patient and her physician as to where her personal stop gains should be based on her own risk factors and family history. If the topical uh, estrogen isn't working, would testosterone help? Possibly. I've talked to, you know, I've got a really good friend and for your, for your followers, her name is um, Dr. Kelly Casperson. She's a female urologist and she has a beautiful podcast about sexual dysfunction in our age called You Are Not, well, it's for all women, but especially in the perimenopause area, uh, You Are Not Broken. And she talks extensively about topical treatments, testosterone, things that you can do to improve the health of the tissue of the vagina. So there are testosterone receptors there and there is some, some potential improvement with uh, a locally applied testosterone to the area. What's her name again? You kind of went out when you said Kelly Casperson, MD, Dr. Kelly Casperson, and her podcast is You Are Not Broken. And talk about when women get older, talk about sarcopenia. They start yeah. with muscle. So, men too. My passion project. So both men and women will, will go through a condition called sarcopenia, which is the natural loss of muscle mass with aging. And we can put percentages. We know from this age to this age, you're going to lose this much muscle mass. And the two top things you can do to combat that, one of the bad things is you lose your functionality. As we get older, you stop being able to do the things physically that you were. And one of the reasons why is loss of muscle mass. You can't lift as much. You can't pick up the grandbaby. You can't do the grocery shopping or climb the stairs because your muscle mass is atrophied so much. So top two things you can do to fight that are make sure you're getting enough protein every day. And so I only can quote for women because that's my area. And so a woman, you know, average weight woman who's doing um, resistance training, we're shooting for 75 to about 105 grams of protein per day, divided out throughout her eating window pretty evenly. That's one of the reasons I talk about making sure you have protein with every meal and every snack. Um, the second thing is resistance training. If you are not doing progressive resistance training, if you're lifting the same eight pound weights every single day, you're doing yourself a disservice. You need to fight to get stronger, to lift a little bit heavier weight consistently, you know, each month, um, so that you're, you're giving your body that signal to keep those muscles strong because your body is working hard to destroy that muscle tissue. And protein, it doesn't matter whether it's grass-fed meat or organic turkey. I have not seen studies, at least in, in you know, perimenopausal women, menopausal women, where they looked at the different types of protein, whether it be plant-based or, or you know, animal-based, and then in the animal-based, if it was grass-fed or not. Now, I, when I shop for my family, I do tend to look for the grass-fed, the, the free-range, you know, the non-hormone-fed. I try to look for things as close to nature intended them to be eaten. Um, again, to avoid any unnecessary additives, um, is, you know, in wild caught salmon versus farm raised, we see a lot of differences. Um, a grass, a farm raised salmon, it has less fat. I mean, sorry, farm raised salmon has more fat, but it's high in omega-6 because what they feed the salmon in the pens is the meal that is high in omega-6 as well versus wild caught, less fat, but the fat there is actually a better fat 
point. Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. So, so whether it's organic turkey, chicken, as far as you, you go for your family, uh, grass-fed meat, wild salmon, you're okay with any of those pro proteins for your family. But again, those those are, are can be cost prohibitive for some families and they can be hard to find. And so I'm not going to judge you because you have to feed your family what you can afford. I'm going to try to work within your, your budget, you know, to make the healthiest choices for your family. And so, you know, everything's about balance and we're not here to fat shame or to judge anyone. So talk about some eating mistakes for menopause and what people should eat in menopause. So I think a lot of the things, you know, the men, women who are in menopause now are going through menopause. We're kind of raised in a certain generation. So we were the fat-free generation. We were eating a lot of margarine, a lot of trans fats, thinking innocently it was healthier. We're just doing what we're told. We got into a rut of having to overschedule our children so that, you know, Johnny has to go to this practice and that practice and we're rushing. And so we fall into convenience food so that we can keep our kids fed and ourselves fed, but we've made no time for meal planning or prepping. So I think, you know, moving in through menopause with those same habits is some of the top things in the Galveston diet that we try to talk, educate people about so that they can make better choices and develop different habits to keep them healthier longer in the future. And healthy fats such as omega-3, avocados, nuts are, are, are all good. Yep. And how about alcohol? Alcohol. So there's definitely some medicinal benefits to wine. We think mostly because of the, you know, if I say it incorrectly, forgive me, resorbitol, which is the, um, it's a component of the skin of the grape that is a very powerful nat natural antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. So when the, the thinkers um, are waxing about why the Mediterranean diet tends to be healthier, they're having a glass of wine of dinner at night, maybe two if you're a man. So the magic number seems to be about six ounces of wine a day for a woman, up to 12 for a man. But however, as we most of us know who drink, alcohol can be very inflammatory when used in <laughs> heavier amounts. So you can't save up your, your glass for the weekend if you've got a party to go to. You're gonna undo all the good and you're gonna land up in a very inflamed place and your body will let you know that very quickly the next day. <laughs> I, I, do you think organic uh, wine is better? Definitely there's, you know, watching the added sugars and alcohol, organic versus not organic. I don't love pesticides. I understand, you know, I have friends who own wine companies. My husband's from Sonoma, California. So he just kind of grew up in that culture. And so they talk a lot about, you know, not all organic farming is organic farming and, and how things are raised and, and really watching the added, the chemical additives in wine that are mass produced versus a small local grower who's just bottling their own. Um, simply as close as you can get to the way nature intended it, um, the better off you're gonna be. Where do you fall on coffee? Organic, non-organic coffee, good or bad? <laughs> Again, watch your additives. Um, I drink black coffee a lot <laughs> every single day. It has its own medicinal benefits. Certainly too much caffeine can have some problems. Um, but um, we, you know, when you're choosing flavored coffees, which I like, I always look for natural flavors. So vanilla, cacao, or I'll add my own nutmeg or add my own cinnamon to the coffee grounds. A pinch of salt can get rid of the bitterness. Um, those are all healthy ways to enjoy coffee. Not, you don't have to drink coffee. So I, you know, we have a lot of people who enjoy tea or just drink water flavored with lemon or nutmeg, or not nutmeg, I'm sorry, or like um, basil, or they'll put rosemary or something in their water or some cucumber to add flavor. 
um, to make it more drinkable. Sugar so milk. I love coffee. That love sugar, milk, sugar milk coffee they have in the South. <laughs> we call it coffee milk when I was growing up. That's a Cajun, uh, I'm Cajun by, you know, 100% Cajun according to my DNA. And um, so um, we drank coffee. My grandmother would make me bottles at five years old with that much coffee, that much milk and a ton of sugar and put it in a bottle, which is probably why I have so many dental issues now, but I love my grandmother. And um, we drank coffee from a very young age as kids. Um, one of the first things in the Galveston diet when I, I didn't, it had a no name. I was just trying to be healthy, um, was learning. The very first thing was learning how to drink my coffee black, which I swore I would never do. I would never, I would travel with equal in a little tiny Ziploc in a special compartment in my purse so that I would never be without it wherever we went because I had to have it in my coffee. So that was the first thing was slowly decreasing the amount of equal I was putting in my coffee and slowly decreasing the cream that I was putting in my coffee till I could drink it back. And that took about two weeks. And then once I got there, I was like, why did I avoid this for so long? Why did I judge myself so harshly? Why did I like make fun of my husband for doing this when it's actually delicious if you just let yourself get used to it? Then I started with the fasting window once I got the black coffee down. Part of your program, you talk about a gratitude journaling. You can talk about that. And how helpful yeah. is that? Um, you know, when we talk about lowering cortisol levels and stress release, for some people, journaling could be, and it's really helped me actually have it right here. <laughs> Um, I have these sheets we created. This is mine from today. I'll back it up so you can't see exactly what I wrote because there's some family yeah. issues on where we talk about, you know, listing out what you're grateful for, what you intend to do and be for today, um, what you're letting go of. That's really powerful for me. When I write down, I'm letting go of something, then I can actually just visually, you know, I have this mental image of it just lifting up to the heavens, you know, that I'm just letting it go. And it's off my shoulders. And it just is like this weight coming off of my body. Um, I talk about things I'm going to be selfish and just do for me. I still call it selfish. Self-care is not selfish. Um, I talk about, you know, we have a list for your victories and your celebrations. Even if it's, I put my shoes on and got out of bed, that could be a victory or a celebration. Went out to dinner with my family. I had a nice talk with my daughter, you know, just, just putting that on paper is such a powerful thing because you're personally acknowledging the good things in your life and the things that you don't need to think about that day. And it's just been such a powerful tool for our students. You know, one of the components of fuel refocusing is stop thinking about the stress and all, all the noise and just like, let's get down to what we're grateful for today. Birth control pills that are used for non-contraceptive mm -hmm. reasons, such as uh, preventing cancer, irregular cycles. What's your feeling about that? How dangerous is it? Um, you know, every medication has a side effect. Every medication has risks. Um, but, uh, you know, oral combined oral contraceptives are a very, very powerful tool. I took them for most of my reproductive life to combat the effects of polycystic ovarian syndrome um, to regulate my periods. And they, I just felt so much better. They also helped control my acne. Both of my daughters ended up after multiple acne treatments, birth control pills will what help them. They'll probably kill me for saying this, but TMI. Um, and so there are a lot of medicinal benefits, but again, personal conversation between a woman or a, a daughter or a child and her um, parent or guardian and the physician about risks, benefits, potential gains, you know, when do we stop if it's not working? How do you know if it's not working? What are the side effects to expect? Are these side effects short-lived? You know, with the birth control pill, nausea is very common in the beginning when you try them, but I think they can be very, very helpful. But again, not everyone, they're not going to work for everyone and not everyone is a candidate. Your gut feeling, you know, taking all your knowledge 
in from all the studies and your personal experience, do you think taking birth control pills increases or decreases your risk of cancer? Um, we know that women who are on birth control pills have a lifelong decreased risk of ovarian cancer. Ovulation leads to ovarian cancer in the long term. So um, we know that. Um, you're probably, and it definitely decreases your risk of endometrial cancer. Chronic inovulation, you know, un, un, unmasked by birth control pills, which is why I was on them, will lead to endometrial cancer. I think you're thinking about breast cancer. Um, here's what we know estrogen and progesterone, it's really the progesterone component, we think, at least in a postmenopausal woman, doesn't cause breast cancer. It feeds breast cancer. And so it's not going to keep a cell from, it's not going to push a cell into becoming cancerous. Um, but once it's, once it's cancerous, it will help feed that production. Women who are on HRT who get diagnosed with breast cancer are diagnosed at an earlier stage and earlier in life than the matched women who are not on HRT. Now, part of that may be bias because when you're on HRT, you have to go to the doctor, okay? And when you're at the doctor, you tend to talk about things that are bothering you like the lump in your breast. So, um, but the honest matter is women who are on HRT or birth control have lower rates of cancer. Now, breast cancer, it's kind of a wash in a little bit of the last studies that I've seen. Some studies show a slight increase, some studies show a slight decrease, but there's not a very, at least last time I looked at this, a clear definitive link between breast cancer and, you know, definite breast cancer and um, birth control use. And what's the difference in the types or the amounts of estrogen and progestin or progesterone, HRT mm -hmm. versus birth control pills? Yeah. So, um, Probably, if I think about it correctly, um, it's it's a magnitude level. You know, the dosages that you need for HRT are a small percentage of what we give to suppress ovulation for a birth control pill. Um, so it's much, 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 much less. So when you're looking at, you know, the big, biggest risk with a birth control pill is going to be blood clots. And, um, you know, especially if you have an unknown predisposition to blood clots. And that risk goes down and stroke due to blood clots for the same reason. And so that risk goes down dramatically with HRT because the dose is so much lower um, to get the desired effect. So let's talk about osteoporosis and women, about one in 10 females as they get older, get osteopenia, osteoporosis. Uh, how can we prevent that? What do you think about the biphosphonates? What is your experience when you look at there's a lot of side effects possibly from the biphosphonates? Mm -hmm. And yeah. is there a better way? Oh, okay. So definitely, you know, right now we're not doing bone density studies without risk factors before the age of 65. So you have to pay close attention to if this runs in your family, because that will qualify you for earlier testing by insurance. Insurance does not want to pay unless you've got some kind of a reason. Um, so nutrition, again, always start with nutrition. You need to make sure you're getting enough calcium in your diet and weight bearing exercise. You know, we have the move mini course and I've got studies that show the amount of resistance training you need to do that the, the bone muscle is a unit in a menopausal woman. And if you're not doing resistance training, that's one of the caveat, you know, one of the most important things to, for the prevention and treatment even of of osteoporosis. Now, there's a huge genetic component where women just chew up bone like crazy based on genetic factors. And, you know, that's a whole separate issue. That's an endocrinologist who needs to get involved in that. Um, 
definitely, you know, Caucasian women, women from like Norway, Sweden, they tend to have worsening levels. The further away you live from the equator that your genetics came from, the more likely you are to have um, osteoporosis. So the, the treatment medic bisphosphonates are oh, terrible on the gut. Um, and so now they're coming up with the IV versions. Um, but those are medications that basically, um, the reason why we have osteoporinia and osteoporosis is we have, we're constantly remodeling our bone, which is why when you break a bone, it'll heal. Um, we're, we're chewing up old bone, we're laying down new bone, and it's just a process. And it's usually pretty stable as far as your net bone is the same. When we go through through uh, menopause and with and aging, the chew up rate of the bone starts surpassing the lay down rate of the bone. And so what these medications that we utilize in menopause that are bone modulator, they try to decrease the modulation of bone so you stop chewing up as much um, and you hang on to the bone that you have. So you decrease the risk of, of the osteopenia and osteoporosis, which are basically the same disease, just more severe versus the other. So osteoporosis means you're at risk for fracture, where osteopenia means you have less bone, but not in fracture risk yet. And how important is it magnesium, boron, strontium, vitamin K2, uh, vitamin D? Yeah, they all, every single one of those has a component in, in bone turnover and bone health. And so when you're deficient in one of those, you're going to increase your risk of bone turnover, therefore increasing your risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis. However, taking super physiologic doses of those does not give you super strong bones, okay? You just need to get to your baseline of normal function um, so that your, your system is working as efficiently as possible. So many of us are deficient in vitamin D. We see increased risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis with that. Vitamin K, boron, magnesium, you know, if you're deficient, yes, you are not going to have as strong of bones as someone who's not deficient, but taking super physiologic doses, which kind of gets touted in the supplement world, will not make you have extra strong bones. And what subset, if any, should take a biphosphonate or do you think nobody should? That's got to be monitored by a physician. You need to have a DEXA scan or whatever, for gold standard is a DEXA scan, um, documenting that you have bone loss severe bone loss leading you to a risk for fractures. I would not take a bisphosphonate unless you had severe risk for fracture. And I want to finish up with a mammograms, ultrasound, thermography. Uh, mammograms have been somewhat controversial uh, that maybe there's too much radiation in mammograms and that maybe there's overdiagnosis. Are you buying that as a OBGYN? I, you know, we don't have a lot of great tools to detect breast cancer at early stages. Um, and so, um, you know, we don't have a blood test, not really. And so that this is, this is the gold standard and that's what insurance is paying for. Um, certainly the CTs are going to be, they're, they're just more expensive. And so, um, and the MRIs are picking up earlier, earlier lesions at, at earlier stages. Your, your, your cancer cells, you have to have a, a you know, it's not gonna pick up one cancer cell, it's not gonna pick up 10. You have to have a speculated mass of cancer cells in order for it to be visible on a mammogram. But that is all we have, you know, it's really the kind of the gold standard. So until we have something consistently better that insurance is willing to pay for, go get your mammogram when it's time. And how about ultrasound or thermography? Um, ultrasound is better for a younger patient um, because our breasts are so much denser when we're younger um, that ultrasound can be a better tool for picking up a mass. You know, when I have a younger patient and 
I feel a mass, the first test I send her for is ultrasound. We want to see if it's cystic or it's solid, you know, and do whatever testing biopsies, drainage, you know, from there. Um, because most masses in, in younger patients are not breast cancer. So, but for an older patient, it is not as effective as a screening tool for breast cancer. That's why we have mammograms because our, we lose the density in our breasts. They become uh, more fatty sadly, but you can see the fat becomes kind of clear and it allows us to see the cancer cell, the clump of cancer cells a lot easier. I'm not a radiologist, so hopefully I'm explaining this correctly. How about thermography? That seems to have gotten to- I don't know much about it. You know, I had to do a breast cancer rotation in residency. They don't do that anymore, which makes me sad because I learned so much. Um, but I don't know much about thermography and I've, you know, I've had abnormal mammograms, which is like the scariest thing in the world. Um, but they just sent me in for MRI. I didn't have them up thermography. So I really don't know that much about it. And how about for prevention, diet and prevention of breast Huge. cancer? Huge. I mean, anything you can do to decrease your inflammation levels though, so, you know, I've, I've had some friends that are the healthiest women in the world who eat in Galveston diet plus, who have had breast cancer at young ages. And so, you know, it is a multifactorial disease. So whatever factors you can control, you know, you might decrease the stage, you might decrease the age, you know, whatever you can do to improve your risk of survival, improve your chance of survival, you need to do. And diet's going to play, nutrition's going to play a huge part in that. And talk about the BRCA gene and preventative, uh, 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 preventative surgeries. Uh, mm -hmm. for, for so, um, uh, you know, I usually refer to the oncologist for this, um, but from what I understand, you know, we're getting better and better and better about picking up people who have a higher genetic risk uh, through certain genes that can be detected, BRCA, BRCA gene one, two, uh, the HER2 new gene, there's, Hercep, you know, there's several that can be, um, that can now be detected and know that you're at increased risk. They're so good. They're able to tell you the percentage chance that you're going to get breast cancer. So what do you do with this diagnosis? Well, you have options. There are medications you can do, um, such as going on tamoxifen. If you, if you're, if you are estrogen receptor positive um, as an anti-estrogen to try to, you know, keep whatever little uh, dormant cells are at bay from, from growing, like I said, it can feed cancer. Um, and you can have surgical removal of the breast electively to try to decrease your chance of getting breast cancer, especially with you've got the family history with the genes combined, but that's something that's done with a breast specialist, a breast cancer surgeon specialist. Um, that's kind of her, and they're usually women for some reason, but there's usually his or her level of expertise and a lot of counseling goes into that. Well, I want to thank Dr. Mary Claire Haber for joining me today. Uh, people want to join up with you and they want to be part of your uh, tribe. How can they do? <laughs> sure. We are everywhere. So if you look up, if you go to Google and you Google Galveston diet, we're going to pop up first thing you see. We have several uh, reviews that have been written about us. You can check those out. You can just go to galvestondiet.com. We have a beautiful website. We have recipes. We have blogs. We have tons of information there to get you started. You can find us on Facebook at the Galveston diet, on Instagram at the Galveston diet, on TikTok, which is our biggest social media platform of all things for a 52-year-old woman to have a million followers on TikTok. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. We'll have 965,000 but who's counting? Um, and so I'm always there creating content. I love teaching. I love educating. If you haven't guessed after me talking this long, um, you're welcome to find us there. And what's your website? GalvestonDiet.com. Well, well, I certainly appreciate it so much. You're such a wealth of information and so much fun to talk to. 
I just want to thank you for joining me today on the Open Your Eyes podcast. I wish everybody out there great health. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.